When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. And if you are new and you are a lover of good music like we are, here's what you need to do. Step number one, wherever you're listening to this on whatever podcast app you're listening to, you need to subscribe. We release every Monday, and so you don't want to miss it. Thing number two, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. That's where you can get kind of the inside inside scoop on what we're doing and then dm us your favorite band and they just might end up on the podcast who knows uh but speaking of bands to show up on the podcast lucas what are we talking about today so this is a con the next episode in our little sub series that we have going on the last episode of every month this is a uh, a long month so we got to do four normal episodes before doing this one uh, but it's the next episode in our music history series mm-hmm. where where we are very slowly and methodically moving through the history of music and observing all of the musical evolutions and kind of just seeing how did we get to where we are today and how do we better understand where we are today? Because obviously everything that we listen to today is an evolution of everything that came before it. So catch us up to speed. Where, where where are we now? So we started in ancient music um, in the time of ancient Egypt and all that uh, old stuff. We've moved through all the BCs, um, through ancient Greece, ancient Rome. And then we started to touch into um, kind of, I guess, the birth of Western music as we know it because the last episode the dark ages was our first music that is still being regularly performed today authentically which is gregorian chant and uh, we looked at in the last episode about the uh, the very um, hard rule that the christian church had over music and we're going to see a continuation of that Although now we're going to start to see some um, some forward movement as well as some resistance to their rule. And uh, this episode is all about what we call the High Middle Ages. So before I did all this research, I just thought the Middle Ages was the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. 
and that the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages were like swapping terms for the same thing. But that's actually not true. When we hit the High Middle Ages, it's we're not referring to the Dark Ages anymore. What what time period is the High Middle Ages? So the High Middle Ages is about one thousand to thirteen hundred. And they're still and we're in the AD now. Yes, we are. And there's actually still one more section of the Middle Ages that comes after that, which is the late Middle Ages. Which is really about a about thirteen hundred to fourteen fifty. Hmm. And um that's what we'll look at in the next episode. So you had mentioned that um, this is not going to be our only episode on the High Middle Ages. And that's somewhat of a change because normally our episodes, we'd be talking about all the music from that particular time period. Mm-hmm. Um, especially our last episode, our Low Middle Ages, which was only on religious music. So since this is one of the episodes that we have, I guess kind of what's the change sort of that allowed for now suddenly a branch of different branches of music. So um, even in this episode, we're actually going to be looking at two different musical styles. Okay. Um, But what we're going to do is we're going to focus two episodes, one on the religious music and one on the secular music, because we are going to now start to see our first um, secular music starting to be, uh, become very popular amongst the common folk and that's going to be what we would call the troubadour music Ooh. and i've so heard if you guys that are... word before i've kind of heard that word kind of thrown around yeah and so this is where we're it gonna from. yep but we'll get more into that um we're actually not going to do this episode in december we're going to do it in january so we're going to take quite a break from it because we've got a very special episode for the last yeah. uh, one in December, which is also the last one of the year. Mm-hmm. So during the High Middle Ages, what what all is happening in the world? So during this period, um, we start to have a um, a moving forward in culture and in society. Um, you could say that this is the beginning of um, what I guess we would very much recall. Like when we have the images in our minds of medieval period, we think of the big castles and the kings and the knights and, um, you know, the crusades, all that. That's the period that we're looking at now. Oh, so this, start to have... this is like your like the typical idea that people would have about the middle ages. Mhm. This is you know the era of chivalry and conquest and kingdoms like you know this is your your king arthur days even though the actual historical king arthur lived during the dark ages whenever he's portrayed in literature and in in movies and all that they they more or so put him in the um the high middle ages 
like just anytime you like even the fantasy stories of where you see like you know like something like game of thrones the way that that society mm-hmm. works um that's they're they're mimicking what was going on in the high middle ages so how much so of, you how much of music is like centralized at this point because we were with like ancient greece and ancient rome like the, it was like greece and rome were like the hot spots for music does does the high middle ages have a have a epicenter yes and that is paris paris Ooh. i would mm-hmm. not guess that and particularly uh the notre dame cathedral okay that makes sense now whoa i guess that's that where that's located what was this whenever like all the stuff in Paris was like being built, like the Eiffel yeah, Tower well, and everything? This, no, no, the Eiffel Tower was built in the eighteen hundreds. Well, really? Wow, nothing. I know nothing. But about history. Um, the this is the time though, throughout all of Europe, that all of the great cathedrals are being built. Um, partly in due to um. It's actually built because of Roman Catholic corruption. They came up with this is where you start to get the ideas of you can um, buy pardons for sins that you haven't committed yet. Indulgences is what they're called. And like, say, if you knew that you were going to go out and sin um, over the weekend, then you could purchase forgiveness ahead of time. And then you don't have to feel bad about going and committing the sin. And so it was, of course, a big um, system to get a lot of money. And they used all that money to head all of these huge building projects. So a lot of the uh, a lot of the big historical um, religious buildings are built during this time on the back of that system. And so um, the church is very much still have a, has a very um, uh, firm grasp on um, culture. And we're, we really won't examine how their influence starts to slip until our next episode, but we do start to see some change and it's a very um this is a very pivotal time in music history because as you can hear in the songs that we're going to talk about we start to have a lot more complexity entering Mm -hmm. the music oh yeah so beforehand um in case you did not hear our uh, gregorian chant episode please go and listen to that, but I'll give a kind of a quick summation of what Gregorian chant was like. And we'll also continue to review that in the first song of the set, because that's going to give us a nice little baseline. Um, but Gregorian chant is a single melody, even though it's sung by multiple voices, they're all singing the exact same melody line. And, um, you know, it's it's very much, um, it's almost very ritualistic to where it's just you know you're you're going through the Latin text. Usually, it's some kind of prayer or recitation of scripture, 
or um you know a a a hymn or a psalm to uh put everyone in a reverential spiritual mood we have two musical movements that come around at this point and they um are sequential so they're not happening at the same time um the first is what's called the ars antiqua and that's a r s space antiqua the old way as that's translated Mm -hmm. and um what this is is you have these composers that are wanting to um shake things up they're wanting to write more complex music but the church is very much against it and so the way that they're able to convince them to let them start experimenting with new music is that they're not allowed to write anything new but instead they're allowed to start um, upgrading previously uh written gregorian chants oh and so they're just like we're not gonna let you write you know a brand new musical piece but you can take one of the old ones and start to you know uh improve upon it so are these composers still whenever we talked last time it was like the the priests would kind of just write it and they would get no credit has that Mm-hmm. Has that changed? Is, is it still like the same, like kind of musically gifted priests, or are there other people kind of entering the fray here? No, this is now the first episode where we're going to have um, composers that their pieces are um, ascribed to them, hmm. and we'll talk about later uh, in the episode the first great composer. The one with the first composer to have a very large and prolific body of work. And who pretty much just, even though, again, he's not the first one to ascribe his name to music. We'll actually talk about a couple of those earlier in the episode. But what everyone will point back to and say, who is the first, like, great classic composer? Uh, we'll find out who that is later on. Mm-hmm. And it's this is not the only episode that he will appear in. Mm, whoa, what? Okay, never mind. That's fine. Because he's going to write both religious and secular music, and he's going to pretty much be the un, um, the uncontested master of both of that time. So he's going to pull a mute math, basically. <laughs> kind of in a way. Yeah, but it's in in his. It's very much. It's not one piece that could be both. You could you could almost say it's like uh, like the the Amy Grant, who had big hits in the Christian world and in the secular world. Oh yeah. So we have kind of like the we have that change. Was there some mm-hmm. sort of event that sort of precipitated all of this sudden, like, cultural change? Or was it just gradual over time? This was a gradual over time. Okay. But something, an innovation does come along that very much makes this possible, and that is um, modern notation. Ooh. And 
this is the period where we finally get the staff that we're familiar with, with the, um, with the rhythmic and um, everything that we now use comes about. And we have a Guido of Arizzo to thank for that. Guido of Arizzo. Guido of Arizzo. Guido so of, of Arizzo. Okay. Yes. Another another French man. Wow. And um, you know the we do have a very primitive form of notation that's used in Gregorian chant. It's the reason why we can still you know produce it. But the problem with that music is that they only told you pitch they would not tell you duration of notes mm. and so the big um the big thing that's really solidified in the modern notation is that we have notes depending on the way that they're written telling you how long to hold each note so half notes whole notes quarter notes that whole idea that's kind of like the big reason why notation or the modern notation was such a big um, thing in music was now we can, we can now have multiple things happening because now we know how to line them up rhythmically. But the second voice can say, Oh, I'm holding for this many beats and this many beats goes to the other and you can start to mathematically figure out how do we link these multiple parts together and still have them be together. Now, you did say, though, that um, in our previous episode was the first episode where we still have this stuff performed correctly today. Mm-hmm. But we don't have that rhythmic aspect. Is that because it's orally passed down? Uh, no, because, I mean, we still have the sheet music that it was written on. But we don't know, like, how to count the notes. I mean, pretty much it's just, it's free flow. You pretty much just, you 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 know the rhythm based on just, like, singing together. Okay. And you have, like, someone at the front that's kind of, you know, helping guide everything. Okay. But now in this you know, you are able to start stringing completely different elements together. That is true. That is a big thing that I noticed in these songs is that Mm -hmm. we're starting to play with like different rhythms and different melodies. Whereas before we had maybe a drone and some melody over that, which is what we'll see in our first song. Yes. So this is what's called polyphonic music. And that's kind of the, I guess, your your big vocab word Ooh. for this, uh, so be a quiz for this, on this episode. Maybe. <laughs> That'd be cool if we did that on Patreon. Oh. We put little quizzes <laughs> on there. Oh my gosh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, polyphonic music. So just that just means different melodical uh, components working together. What we what we previously had was monophonic. Mono being one, poly being multiple. Mm-hmm. So, 
that's kind of what is now happening in this um, in this musical style. Now there are still some things that are the same, as in this music is only being performed in churches. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna you're not gonna you know go anywhere else and have these pieces being played. Mm-hmm. They're still being sung in Latin. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the most part, do not... they're still only being sung. Yes, we still have no musical accompaniment. For the most part. For the most part. there's. I think there's and, one instrument in this entire set. Yeah, and honestly, that instrument is probably only there just because that's a modern choice and not how it would have been played authentically back right. then. So... Um, yeah, what we're going to see in the first half of our six-song set is we're actually going to see the same song three different times. And that and that's supposed to be part of that rewriting that, thing. That Ars Antiqua, exactly. Yeah, ours, and so what, yeah. we, what we're going to have is we're going to show the first song as being like, you know, the, the original version of what's being taken. You can almost call these the first cover songs where you're cool. taking a song but then you're making it your own yeah oh. and adding your own artistic um flourish to it. although you couldn't do too much because a we didn't have the musical knowledge and the musical skills to be able to do that yet and b although i you know you do have to admit though there's a lot of ambition in what they're doing oh yeah oh yeah yeah, but but in in the stuff that I heard, there were a lot of points where my modern ears were like, ooh, this is what they're going to do from that chord. It's going to tend towards this, and then it doesn't do that. And so it's like we still mm-hmm. definitely have a long way to go from where we are here to where we are now. But we definitely made a huge step with that polyphonic notation polyphonic music and and also there's a lot of other music theory elements that that are crazy i mean i i noticed that in last episode we pretty much only stayed in eight note scales we pretty much only stayed in the Mm -hmm. a major note or its derivative but we have especially the songs towards the end we start going into you know diminished chords and then even sometimes jumping outside of the major scale and going to like harmonic minor. Yeah. Which, yeah. Which sounds almost so let, sinister. Uh-huh. So let's talk about what the, uh, what the second half of our set is going to look yeah. like. So this is a very specific, um, uh, type of composition and it's actually not the full, part obviously um it's very long when you add all five parts together so i picked three of those five parts and what this is is this is called a um, a catholic mass mm-hmm. and there before this time there was a you know your typical uh gregorian chants that pretty much all did um very specific roles and there's a it's like a five-part prayer 
and the um, you start off with the um, hold on I'm did you lose your train of trying to remember exactly <laughs> yeah I lost my train of thought <laughs> pardon me oh I was um, waiting for the next word I was like what? um so you have you have the five sections right. that uh, you start with Kiri, Gloria, Credo, Sanctus, and end with Agnes Dei. Mm-hmm. And we have Gloria, Credo, and Agnes Dei. Yeah, and so pretty much it's just it takes you through this very um, very specific mode through um, kind of all of the different aspects that you would want in a Christian service. And they're just, they're meant to be this long, encompassing part. Mm-hmm. One one unified piece. Question about kind of church, like, did has anything about the way that, like, church is kind of structured, has that changed at all? Like, with them wanting to, like, like, plus up the music, are they, I mean, obviously they're wanting to plus up their, uh, cathedrals you know is there other stuff that Mm -hmm. that at that point like catholicism like is there other kind of external influences that they were kind of driving from to kind of build pretty much pretty much this is when as we have the kings really starting to exert their power over their lands uh, the roman catholic church absolutely saw it as a contest against their own power and so if you really feel like this is a show of force of you know we're going to we're going to start getting bigger and better and more grand and almost to kind of just show look how powerful the church is look how grand the church is look how much money we have look how holy we are um you know you definitely cuz during this period you do start to have um, world leaders starting to butt heads against the Roman Catholic Church. Sometimes the Pope wins. Sometimes the King wins. Mm-hmm. You start to have this dissension where um, Catholicism is kind of starting to lose a little bit of its influence. And I don't think it's coincidence that at the same time that they're worried about losing influence that they're kind of almost making this big show yeah. to um to kind of show how powerful that they are mm-hmm. and so i don't i can't prove that there's no definitive thing that says that but i i think you know using your context clues you can kind of see that that is a possibility that would be my best um guess for that hmm. so yeah um and we'll and we'll really delve deep into that in our next episode when we see our first secular music coming out and that's kind of almost you could see the the direct challenge to the church's um domination over music all right so quick question are they like stylistically like way different Yes, they are quite different, but it's, but it's because that's when we're going to really see instruments entering the picture as well as localized dialects and languages. 
No more Latin. And but we still do have this um, this tying element of poly- polyphony, where we have multiple melodic uh, things going on at the same do time. Do we ever revert back to monophonic music after this time period? Not in the sense of it being the dominant musical um uh, like once we hit polyphonics in culture, like it doesn't go back. No, I mean I can't look at any other um, musical movements. Again, you'll always have you know subgenres that like mm-hmm. to pay respect to what came before. But in terms of like what's but what people are pushing the envelope on, like we never really go back. Yeah. I, I would no, I would, not not that I've come across. I would say to a lesser extent, our previous episode—I think it was our previous episode about Pantera—they kind of took a step back from poly polyphonics, and in a sense, like all the instruments were kind of playing the same thing, right? Where we we just came off of all that '80s stuff, where all the instruments were kind of doing random stuff, seemingly random stuff, especially comparative. Uh, right, you had like Rush and Yes and all the prog guys, and you had all the thrash guys doing the instruments were all playing different things, and then we have Pantera come in where everything is sort of back to being together, and there there mm-hmm. is a lot of power, like there's just a lot of raw power in having everything be the same, and that's something that kind of you'll hear, or at least I heard when um listening to these songs is when they're they're kind of playing or they're singing in uh polyphony you have a sense of there being like a lot of space and it's very flowy but you can't like pinpoint where like the rhythm is and it's it doesn't hit you very hard but that's not the point right because they're not they're not a metal band so it didn't matter so with Pantera, yes, they um, they definitely make are making a step towards simpler music. But um, even the fact that introducing something like drums immediately introduces a polyphonic element, not dynamically, and, yeah. as well. Yeah, but in the in the sense of just that, it's very rare now that you ever. I mean, obviously, anything, if you ever have a, a singer singing a cappella, that'll obviously always be uh, monophonic. Mm-hmm. But you definitely rarely ever see multiple people playing monophonically to where it's it's all exactly the same. Yeah, and some of these songs, we are kind of polyphonic but we're still monorhythmic. And, yeah. and that's, I guess, that's technically still polyphony. Yeah. Because, but... yeah, polyphony is not regarding rhythm, but rather melody. Right. And that's crazy because in our last episode, we didn't even have any chords, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and even here, we're starting to dabble in suspensions. We have some cluster chords, and there are some suspended chords in there, but they're never treated the way that we treat them today. And they have suspensions, mm-hmm. like they'll suspend from the five to the one, you know, 
but that's not a suspended cord. It's just it's just a general idea that you go from the five to one. The five resolves to the one. Circle of fifths. So we're starting to understand the circle of fifths in history more than we had before. And that's a big deal because that rules all of music if you really think about it. That's one of those things that rules all of uh, music harmonically. Yeah, it's we definitely are seeing a uh, forward movement here. And I think that that's uh, in itself very uh, interesting. I think yeah. that uh, there, there are, you could say that there's instances where, um, you know, that they're almost being a little too ambitious for their own good. Mm-hmm. And that they're, um, you could say that they're not quite mastering it yet. I don't think mm-hmm. at all that any of these are bad compositions or else I wouldn't put them on no. here. But you definitely have the sense of almost just like it's this, uh, it's this new idea, this new toy that they're, that they just really want to, um, kind of almost give everything they've got like the the reins have been taking off have been taken off oh yes Mm -hmm. we finally Mm -hmm. get to do something new now let's just do everything let's make it as complex as possible it's kind of like when somebody like writes their first you know epic you know like rush's early epics are nothing compared to their later epics Mm -hmm. because they haven't mastered it yet and it's finally like this idea of oh we can tell this really complex story and we can add all these different elements and they want to add everything into it and it just it doesn't they haven't gotten the touch yet Mm -hmm. and we haven't gotten the touch yet here either but it's still it is really still good yeah and that's why even though we have a couple of composers that come by first there's not the obvious master until later on. Okay, so what there's era what era did he come about? Like what I mean this era, but like what years? So his um time is um I'm pulling up the years so I can be accurate. Um. So he actually is from 1300 to 1377. So he's technically out of the out of the high Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. But it it fits okay. thematically with where where we're at because he's also part of another. How we have the Ars Antiqua in the first mm-hmm. half of our set. The second movement mm-hmm. that we have is called the Ars Nova. And the Ars Nova is definitely the most, the more popular and the more respected uh, of the styles of this time period as far as kind of the grand scope. You'll hear, if you were to kind of do an overview of music history, you'll hear a lot more about the Ars Nova than you will the Ars Antiqua. Because the Ars Antiqua was kind of like the introduction of all these new ideas but there was still some refinery left to be done. The Ars Nova is kind of like when they crack the code. And mm. that's definitely um, uh, Guillaume uh, de Machaut. Uh, his, he's kind of the, the master of that time period. Uh, 
pronounce it D Dean Dean Michaud. Dean Michaud. Not Dean. D D E. D Michaud. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotta make sure because that's because I have said this composer of this time period multiple times now, so I want to make sure I yeah. use his name. D Michaud. Okay. I mean, I could also be pr- com- pronouncing that wrong, but I feel like that that's fairly um, correct. And we still have sort of the monasticism that where we still are doing the Gregorian chant style, acapella style. Yes, it's the that style will never truly fall out of uh, popularity. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing to where, like, when this comes along, it completely wipes out Gregorian chant. Mm-hmm. Really, it's kind of like almost you can think of it as the the smaller places, the mm-hmm. the smaller monasteries and churches, always continue to do Gregorian chant. It's it's most of the time in these these new big gaudy cathedrals mm-hmm. that um, this that this new musical style is being used because they want to have a music that matches the splendor and the beauty and the bigness and majesty ah. of these cathedrals that's why notre dame was such a uh, they even it even had its own school of music really kind of the first modern school of music that we have wow. and that's but where we... all that's where all of the songs that we're going to look at in this set um were written and performed but we do have we still have sort of the from from the dark ages where we're still kind of in the dark religiously like the people still have to read the scriptures in latin and you still have the monastic life and you still have a lot of sort of i guess hidden secrets or whatever mhm it still it still feels like the dark ages but we're we're getting out of them Mm-hmm. Okay. It's the first forward movement in 400 years. Right, that's true. It's crazy, so, 400 years. Yeah, probably even longer, mm-hmm. depending on where you would like to put your starting point. Mm-hmm. Right, so, if we're going to 576, then yeah, 400 years. That's intense. Yeah. Okay. And and they they still don't have instruments because it's considered um vain, vain and uh again we don't want to distract from the meditative place. And we also don't want to have um an instrument that stands out to where someone could receive personal praise. To I say I'm that so glad you said meditative because one thing that I noticed from all of the songs that we're going to talk about is that they hang on a syllable for like ever. Oh yeah, like ever and, and like the entire song is like just them saying the title very very slowly. <laughs> yep, it's like they're meditating <laughs> on the word. Uh huh. And then and when sure that's by design. Oh yeah. 
but you do start to see a little bit though that there's there's kind of a bit of this pride in composition mm. mm-hmm. we're starting to again we we start to now have composers putting their name to pieces of music we know who wrote these mm-hmm. and there's in a way some of the complexity of what's going on here kind of does take away from the simple meditative trance that Gregorian chant can put you in. It, it catches your ear a little bit to where you kind of start to listen more to what's happening musically. It's still very reverent and, you know, not near the level that it eventually would go to. But you start to see it creeping in a little bit. Again, that's why this is an important step. We're we're moving in a new direction at this point. But the church didn't want to put a stop to that composer sort of fame. No, because again, I think that this was this was all intentional to kind of show um, the power of the church. And okay. I think that this this was a way that they could, you know. Again, this is this is music that very much fits the setting that it's performed in. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But I think that there were unintended consequences to it that they probably did not consider. Right, and that's the the evolution that it would continue to take. Mm-hmm. Well, because if you can attribute your name to your work, then you want to make it the best it can possibly be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then you know, when culture itself gets this huge shot in the arm at the Renaissance, mm-hmm. then, you know... Music just progresses so fast. But it definitely helps that at this point music is starting to move in that direction anyway right. and then when culture around it changes it's kind of almost the op- the excuse that it needs to really make that full leap hmm. but That's even so through weird. the even through the renaissance um religious music is still going to be the dominant form of music Although it's the last time period that we'll see that. Hmm. It's it's still it's it's almost like in the Renaissance, this type of music that we're gonna be looking at kind of reaches its peak and reaches its its critical mass. And then the period after that, which is the Baroque period, that's when um instrumental music and secular music really um, explode into wonderful, extravagant things. Uh huh. Almost like you're trying to gold plate the music itself. <laughs> that, that's what I. That's the feeling that I get from Baroque music. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine like going back in time and handing like some church leader like a modern like musical record or even like the Beatles and be like, Oh yeah, this is what music is now because let them listen to Hillsong. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) 
<laughs> but it's like there's so there's so many things that are so different. Like we definitely recognize this as music, right? But who's to say they won't recognize our music as music? Because That's it's true. It, it doesn't. Their music doesn't have instruments. They don't have the concept of electric guitars or the harmonies that we have or drums. You know, they don't have hooks. Four four tempo hooks. Yep. Yeah. Well, there's there's some like codas, I guess, but there's no like chorus. Mm-hmm. There's Again, repeated yeah. elements. The whole idea of modern worship music is to is to make it as easy as possible for people to participate. Yeah. Right. It's completely different. But back then, the whole idea was to get them to not participate. I think we still keep some roots, though, of, like, Christian music still trends. Uh, well, I guess Christian music that is played specifically for the purpose of being played in church, you know, and not like a radio hit, is mm-hmm. is purposefully um, uh, singable. And I, and I think mm-hmm. relating back to, like, I still feel like there's the same mindset of like, well, let's keep it really simple and let's put them in kind of this mood, you know, and make it not flashy or showy and let's purposefully make it simple to as a means to an end. And I feel like that's that's true. that's stayed pretty consistent. Sort yeah. of sort of like that meditative yeah. idea. It's that we way less to an dark- extent, but I feel like the same forgive i guess the pun like the same spirit is there you know no yeah no i i think i think you're right because if you listen to a lot of this stuff especially in this episode you can't really tell what unless you've heard the song a million times or listened it to it a million times i mean literally a million times you don't know like what melody is going to come next Whereas modern worship music is written yeah. to be predictable. It's written to be yep. like you could write the melody yourself. And if you uh, listen to like instrumental worship music, it's so similar to Gregorian chant. It's just like they have that like drone mm, pad under everything. And then they usually kind of like have like a swelling guitar line or something over the top, you know? I didn't know there was such thing as instrumental it's, worship it's music. It's like a, I've heard it. It's, it's just, hmm. it, yeah, it just kind of exists in in the same way where it's, it sounds like it would just be like the middle section of echoes. Yeah. <laughs> really? Like there's no. Like okay. There's no, I was making like, a like joke. There, but like okay. there's no percussion at all. It's just like music to like pray to, pretty much. So there's no words at all, and there's it, it's it's almost just like what we talked about in the Gregorian chant. It's like it's just meant to be background noise that like puts you kind of in in the in a mood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like there's hardly ever any chord changes. It just stays there for a long time. I wonder if there's a music choice channel for Gregorian chants. I bet there is. I don't know what made me think of that because it's like music choice, you know, puts you in the in the right mood for whatever you want. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't know. That was just 
I I wonder if there's anyway. I wonder if people get Grammys for like I wonder if there's like a subgenre for like Gregorian chant or ancient music at the Grammys. <laughs> oh, I, thought you were I don't know. Music choice. I was like, what? <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, but are they still being written today? Like, I know they're still being performed, but... I don't think so. I think that the idea is that you just play what's already been written. Hmm. Kind of in the same way, again, outside of of movie scores, you don't have classic new symphonic pieces being written today. Mm -hmm. I almost used classical the wrong way like I tell everyone (laughs) not to. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you don't you don't have composers that are just like I'm gonna go on a world tour after I write this new symphonic piece. Well, you kind of do. I mean, Eric Whitaker exists. Yeah, but they're not at all very prevalent. It's a it's an incredibly niche thing to do. Right, but I mean it it happens. Sort of. All right, there's an award for best historical album. Oh, I don't know what it means. I bet it means if you write a like a informative like history lesson to music, and you get like, <laughs> uh, and and like ninety percent of the people pass the quiz afterwards. No, yeah, the quiz on our Patreon, yeah. <laughs> I still think that's a great idea. That's I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> because could we pass our own quiz? That's the real question. Oh. I don't think we Oh, that could be interesting. I that gave would, it to you guys first. That would be a fun after hours episode. Yeah. <laughs> like a quiz. Take, take the quiz. <laughs> it, yeah. To have a quiz. Anyway. We sh- maybe. Maybe sometime in the distant future. Anyway. I think we can go ahead and move on to the next section. Yeah, I'm ready to talk about all the different musical elements that every single one of these songs introduces. So, yeah. All right, well, we'll take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the uh, six songs that we have picked for this set. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about the high Middle Ages and the religious music that surrounds that time period. And now it's time to talk about the six songs that we've selected for this episode. Now, if you look on the Spotify link in the description of each episode, you'll see that there are more than six songs. And that's for a very particular reason. The reason which I will let Lucas explain to you guys because he knows more. Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. So what's going on with uh, some of the songs on here is that the second song in our set, for some reason on Spotify, they decided to divide them up into multiple songs. Why they did this, I'm very puzzled and confused. It doesn't make very much sense. But that's what's going on. So really, it is six songs, and we're going to talk about them as if they are six songs. But as far as the broad uh, reason why are we talking about songs in this section, um, this is our way for us to be able to more concretely talk about um, 
the musical ideas that we were expressing in the first segment. And it's intended for you guys to be able to listen to the songs that we're talking about and the music that we've been talking about. So this is going to be your way of being able to understand the musical ideas we've been explaining. And the way that I pick the six songs, it's a little bit different this time. Um, there's some very specific things that I was kind of getting into uh, last time, but I'll explain more in depth as we go through each song, why the songs are picked the way they are. But also in a way, I tried to uh, make it to where there's a flow between them, that there's a nice um, transition from start to finish. And um, the way that you can listen to these songs is that there's a link in the description of the episode that goes to a Spotify playlist. And if you uh, click on it, you'll be able to listen to not only the songs in uh, this episode, but all the songs in our previous episodes as well. So make sure you go check that out. And so we can go ahead and get into the first song of the set, which is going to seem strange because it's it's almost going to feel like we have gone backwards, that you're just going to be like, well, this is exactly the same as the last episode. Mm-hmm. And in a way it is, but this is going to kind of start the theme of our first three songs in the set. Because we're actually going to be looking at really the same song, but how it evolves. Because if you remember in the first segment, the way that they got away with um, all these new concepts is that they were allowed to upgrade or do improved versions of previously existing songs. And the song that we're going to be looking at in this uh, first section is called Vidurant Omnes. And I'm sure I totally destroyed the way that that's pronounced. Yeah, it well it's hard to tell how it's pronounced because i mean once again they will take three minutes to say it but yeah this this song is definitely it's definitely very much dark ages vibe Mm -hmm. it's super simple there's that droning beneath it um no there's not even a droning on this one we don't even have a droning yet yeah this is pure monophonic it's it's completely monophonic and I guess I think they recorded it. It sounded like there was a female voice recorded, but obviously, and when it was originally written, that wouldn't have been a thing, if I remember correctly. Uh, but yeah, they hang on each syllable for a lots of different notes, and that's something that we're going to see throughout the set. It's very flowy, and it sounds like there's a little bit of suspended ideas. It sounds like they're trying to like add some tension but you can't add a lot of tension if you only have one note it's very hard to do that and so there's not any suspension that's actually substantial and so it is very a very good starting point because it's so similar to the dark ages stuff i will i yeah i've been curious about like i didn't pick up that other than like from the titles, I didn't really like 
and maybe it's just because this is how Gregorian chant was and we talked about this in the last episode where it was like there's not like a hook like like nowadays whenever you do like reharmonizations or like um like kind of a different flavor of cover of a song now it's mm-hmm. usually really obvious to tell what song it is whenever you do it you know because it's like oh those are the words you know to that song or like oh yeah that's that melody of that hook of you know that song so i found it pretty mm-hmm. difficult and i'm curious because like obviously i think we have a western idea of what a reharmonized song is you know because i'm thinking like from song to song i mean they're probably still saying like the same words but it's hard it was hard for my ear to pick out like that if it was even the same melody mm-hmm. yeah the there are sections in these um new versions where they do switch from the polyphonic section to the plain chant section mm-hmm. And so those are the areas where they are kind of, you know, where you can say, oh, this is the original version right here. Uh, got it. But the, and but then the the all the polyphonic stuff, that's completely new. So it's just like they are. So it's not a cover new ideas. properly. It's like we're going to do a part of the song that you want and then we're going to do whatever we want and then we're going to go back and just say that it's the same. Yeah, so they're jumping they're jumping back I and forth that. between yeah, between the new ideas and the old ideas. So <laughs> So yeah, so this um song is taken from uh Psalm 98 and pretty much I can tell you right in a very quick translation what the whole thing is saying. Mm -hmm. And that's all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Rejoice in the Lord, all lands. The Lord has made known his salvation in the sight of the nations. He has revealed his righteousness. That's the whole thing right there. Wow. (laughs) And so it's just, but we're going to see this idea that's going to start being introduced of um you know holding out these syllables for very long times it's what's called a melisma there's another golden vocab word for you wow so but yeah in this first song this is just the simple gregorian chant it's very uh uncomplicated this is meant to just establish the baseline we're gonna see where we're starting Mm -hmm. And then from that point, we'll um, we'll start to see kind of where the evolution takes place, right? Ooh, and, yeah. and it starts taking place in a big way too as we go through this set. So I mean, we can go mm-hmm. ahead and get started with the second one. Yeah, because there's not there's not going to be a whole lot we'll say about this first right. song that we didn't already beat to death in our last uh, episode, right? It's 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 the exact same thing. It's a mm-hmm. Gregorian chant. But so now we have our first um, composer that we're going to actually talk about. Whether or not he is the first composer, I don't know that. I don't think he is. 
but he's definitely one of the first notable composers because he was definitely a big um, pusher for this new style of the Ars Antiqua. And his name is Leonin. Just Leonin. Leonin. And so he was part of the Notre Dame School of Music. He was pretty much kind of like the the founder and headmaster of it. Oh, wow. So he was very much an important figure. And um, he was kind of the first one to come up with this idea. And so now we get into the second song, which is actually on the Spotify list going to be like six songs. Yeah, long. I think it is. Again, why they, why they split it up into so many segments, I'm not sure because that's not at all the way that it's meant to be um, listened to. Because we'll see in the next song, pretty much the same um, idea and structure, but compressed all into one song on the on Spotify. So, um, if so, that's that'll answer the question that Grant set forth on why do we have so many songs in this episode? It's not that we have lots of different songs; it's all the same song or supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so this is where we start seeing that polyphony, or polyphony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so there's like. There's multi-part vocals. It's not necessarily harmony yet in the set, but it's like there's a drone and there's a lead. So we have multi-part vocals now, which it's not necessarily harmony. It's kind of like there's a drone and there's a lead and there's some harmony put throughout this song, uh, but it's not necessarily like beautifully constructed like this is what this chord is and we're gonna go from like a five to a four it's no we're not there yet and we still have those hanging syllables that what's it called melismas i was gonna say miasma but that's a ghost song yeah but and and it eventually will break this song eventually does break into it kind of progresses itself music theory wise uh, it breaks mm-hmm. into some simple droning chords towards the middle um, and there's some, still some suspended ideas that we had from um, the traditional Gregorian chant but now we can kind of flesh them out a little bit more because we have that polyphony but we still aren't using suspended chords the way we do today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is that idea of tension and release, and we're able to kind of convey it better. Yeah, we get the tonal center because even though we don't have chords, we have we're pretty much adding like the bass harmony. Right. Kind of yeah. Like like I was saying in the previous, we kind of have this this idea of this brand new toy that's been. Um, put in the hands of these composers. Right. And they're just kind of like, oh, yes, finally. You know, you you wonder if maybe they were all their lives wanting to um, to to try some their hand at a more complex musical arrangement. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that... And so it's just like... Um, like, we we talked before that the church was like, driving all of music but like 
it was like it was monophonic do you think like there was already kind of like an underground market for polyphonic music because like it's it's possible where were they getting any of their inspiration for for any of this if it had been this i mean for their entire life the only music that they ever heard was monophonic that's true that's a very good point because it seems like we just uh... come out the gate and it's and they just have an understanding of how music works that's a little bit that's a little Mm -hmm. bit uncanny for um you know like considering how long it took us to get like from the ancient greece to ancient rome like we started kind of getting a little bit of polyphony you know Mm -hmm. and how long that took Uh to like now it's you know within you know just by saying like hey you can write more parts now they're just like yeah great and then we get all this stuff it seems strange in a weird kind of way like where were they where did they mm -hmm. learn how to how to do this you know well i i would think that to me it sounds like a lot of trial and error you know because you have that droning um root note and a melody going mm-hmm. on top of it. And so you can kind of from there figure out what notes sound good together, what notes don't sound good together, what mood it kind of puts itself in when you play these two notes versus these two notes, and what's a good transition. And so just putting your sort of traditional uh, melody that you'd have from your art, Tis Antiqua, Ar- Ar- Ars, Ars Antiqua, Antiqua. yeah, um, over that droning root note. You that's not a lot of composition, but you already have a lot of experimentation to play around with. Just as a composer, you have a lot of information to kind of process. Having never heard harmony before, that's that's mm-hmm. that's essentially a every type of harmony you could use yeah yeah and if you notice really harmony is not um of the common thing that's being had here it's more about conflicting i guess maybe not conflicting is the right word but um more about just differing melodic lines rather than you know putting things together in these very um I guess you could say the having multiple lines, but yet they are still simple. Right. Now it's, you have multiple lines, but they're very complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, you know, it's almost like they added like vocal runs. Right. Mm-hmm. You yeah. don't, you don't necessarily have so much of that yet in this set. You certainly see it a lot more later. But we are. Mm-hmm. This is this is still, um, you know, very much the beginning of it. But yes, we um, will see it continue, and almost it's we do have this crescendo throughout the set. Mm-hmm. Of not only is it getting more complex, but they're also getting better at doing complex. Right, that's true, and and we do have some rapid chord movement, kind of like you said, and that's that's something mm-hmm. that's very easy when you're doing acapella especially when you have vocalists who are used to singing melody like that. 
um, if you just split them apart to different parts of of the uh, of the scale and have them you know parallel each other it's a very easy way to create chords uh, that happens all the time when you're doing background vocals and like pop music um, and I think I think it's in this uh, I think it's in the third version of this song that we'll see here in a minute that that will have that repeated sort of rhythm but we don't necessarily have a chord progression we don't have any re really strong repeated rhythm in this song um, there's no strong repeated chord progression so we don't have that hook and there's not really an implied melody you can't really predict where the melody is going to go um, and I think part of that, once again, is just like our, our modern ears are hearing things and expecting things that they have not come up with yet. And we're also used to things mm -hmm. that we've done over and over and over again. And it kind of makes you think like at some point, have we in our time put melodic composition in a box? And like, oh, this is this mm. is where this resolution has to go. I think there. I think it was. I think it's in both these versions of Bitterant Omnes, um, second, third, where they'll hit that. They'll hit like a giant like five unison chord. And so I'm expecting them to go to. Um, uh, I don't think no something five. Ethan, you know what I'm talking about when they when they hit that huge five open chord and then you expect them to go to like the the one over six or something yeah like melodically hit the one but be over a six chord and i and then because that's 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 all over the place in um movie scoring is that sort of thing where you'll you'll hit a big unison thing and then open into a huge minor with the third on the top yeah. Because it's so sad and it's so emotional. And so we use it all the time because it's effective. But neither version uses it because they just haven't come up with it yet. And so they had to come up with something else. It's just weird. It's just something that, that I that I was thinking about that like we expect things from music and because we expect them we will write them that way mm -hmm. and and we it's almost like the music is writing itself which in in a way is good you know as a composer that's nice i guess but also it's like you want to do something new and you want to kind of throw people mm -hmm. off anyway i'm off i'm off my soapbox now <laughs> <laughs> it's always so fascinating to hear all of the like when talking about suspended five i'm just like i have no idea what part of the song you're talking about <laughs> but it's very interesting to kind of hear you guys go into those different areas honestly i think it's the third but it doesn't matter it, it feels like the five because they're in a minor minor were, minor were you guys noticing that this song was just in mixolydian the whole time really Mm -hmm. They they never no. hit the seven. It's always a flat seven. Hmm. 
I mean, those that was one of the church modes. Yeah, I mean, because again, yeah. you think that they don't, they're not, they're not as much focusing on, um, on keys rather than you know modes. Well, I, I say they never hit the seven. Like whenever they go to the five, obviously they're going to use the, the third of the, five. You know, but, mm-hmm. like I they do a lot mean. of the. Uh, like a lot of like that that flat seven stuff I was kind of surprised yeah and there's a there's a there's a richness to the way that the vocals were produced during this time that I really admire listening to all of these songs it's big, mm. just um, sounds like just like one room mic Mm-hmm. There's just there's just such a nice um ambience right. to it all. Right. And and also it has the natural reverb for something like this typically has the tendency to get very muddy, you know, but it's okay because it's a cappella. Mm-hmm. And it actually it adds to the richness in that way. Yeah. And, you know, this was in the same way that this was written in Notre Dame, this recording uh, was performed in Notre Dame. That's cool. And I believe I said in the last episode that I had actually gotten to go into uh, Notre Dame whenever I took a trip to France. Did you realize the the significance when you were there? Absolutely not. I just thought, hey, this is where the hunchback lives. <laughs> if you were to go back now, do you think you'd have a, a higher level of, uh, I don't want to say reverence or respect, but like uh, a higher level of, I guess, awareness of like. Absolutely. Because I don't think I understood. Like, I just saw it as a historical building, a, a very famous building. But I. I guess I didn't understand why it was famous outside of the fact that it's a really old cathedral and yes, it's very um, impressive on like an a architectural level. Uh, yeah. But I didn't, you know, have the understanding to know what it meant, especially for music because of the fact that it was this, you know, really like the first mm. center of music to have kind of you know this place where if all of the great musical minds would go to this one place to further um musical ideas it was the it was the it was the egypt or the greece of or the rome of like the high middle ages yeah but instead of it being a uh, a whole country and we not having an idea of what part of the country it's it's a very not even a specific city but a specific yeah. building yeah that is kind of cool to have this one building as the the center of all cultural advancement in music like i think that that's really it's cool. like that uh it's like that studio in i think it's like in memphis or something where like everything was recorded all, uh-huh. all... or uh um, uh, that, Sound City and 
in that's California. Let's uh, yeah, that's that's not in Memphis. It's in I can't remember. LA. Okay, I didn't even remember its name. I just uh, it's one of my favorite. But yeah, it is kind of like it is kind of like one... that because that is a very particular like in the entire world every musical advancement was happening. well may okay a significant number a significant portion most 90% of musical advances advancements were in that building mhm and so yeah if i were to go back again then um definitely i would have a much um more reverent attitude while being there not that i was irreverent but i just again i just i don't think i quite understood again like my biggest thing was oh this is where the the hunchback Mm -hmm. is from and i've i've seen pictures of and i've heard about it but i didn't really understand it past that so Mm Yeah, to kind of learn that this was the the epicenter of musical advancement was a really cool thing to learn. Right. So, so let's let's go ahead and move on to the third iteration of this song, which is definitely kind of the um, the climax of where this song was, is leading. I was so impressed at these at the beginning vocals on this song. It hit me out of nowhere mm-hmm. because in, in any of our ancient music stuff, we had never had an arrangement that utilized like th- that style of singing, like where they're like going between yeah. so quickly. Yeah, it's a lot of it's still like the same syllables, but you got that you got that very rapidly changing chords. Oh, I think they are chords. Yeah. Now this one, before you lie to everyone, I know this one is in major and not Mixolydian. Before I lie, by the way, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if the last one was in Mixolydian or not. I, I, I'm sure it was. I didn't, I didn't pay attention to that. But this one I know is in major yeah. because you have that suspension between the the major seven and the one yep. at the very beginning. And this one, I would have to say, like the first few seconds. For some reason, I just I didn't I didn't like it until they started doing that suspension thing because I'm like, oh, it's just going to be a whole bunch of unison stuff again, and then it wasn't. And I think this was the this was the point that was the point in the set when I realized that oh, like we are progressing throughout yeah. the set, and. Yeah, it was it was really crazy to have had that realization and then go through this song and realize like there's a lot that's actually happening. You know, I mean we still have we still have a drone that we had from the previous song, but that's also that's still a new idea having a drone there. And then we also have, you know, parallel chords where like I mentioned earlier where you have uh two different people singing or two different uh vocal lines happening you know just a few notes from each other and paralleling across the scale and that's something that we still do today so that's a big deal um and i think this was the song where there is like a brass instrument in there but that's a stylistic choice that was put in after you said 
Okay. Yeah, because they would not have done that back then. I don't. I didn't even notice that. Um, whenever I was yeah, I was to it. for these episodes, I tend to take notes because I notice a little bit more when I do that. Um, uh-huh. Whereas if if we're listening to like a a more modern artist, I just I can kind of pick up on things you know a lot easier. Yeah, it's it's you know it's right. just natural right. to and do so that. That's, when I heard that, I was like, huh, that's not a voice. You know, I'll make a note of that, but. And and we finally get a actual like a proper suspension here. It's not technically a suspended chord, but it is a suspension where it sounds like we have it's e- it's either like a diminished chord or it's like a five with like a flat seven or something. But we have when they finally first say omnes and the whole song there there's actually a suspension right there and it's like it was so satisfying to actually finally hear a good like modern suspension and then resolution um it's not actually suspended chords so we still have a while to get to cluster (laughs) chords but hey you know we'll give them this You'll you'll take. We'll what give you can him get. this one. Yeah. So who's this composer? Yeah. Um, so this is Periton. Uh, again, probably not saying that correctly. So anyone that is either um, masterful in the French language or just from their extensive musical knowledge knows more about this stuff than I do. Um, I apologize, but Periton was kind of uh, Leonin's successor, and he is the much more influential um, composer of this style. He uh, of, of the Ars Antiqua for sure, and. You know, you can hear it in the complexity of what's going on here. Like, yes, um, the previous version had melismas in it, but the melismas were not as uh, as long and drawn out. Here in this version of the song by Periton, the it takes almost three entire minutes to say the title of the song. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> where it probably took about half that amount of time in the previous version. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you can definitely and, and see the, that yeah. there's an evolution happening. Mm-hmm. And this is an incredibly complex, detailed work. I mean, this in of itself is a 13-minute song. Yeah, yeah that is and true. Is Periton the the king of the high, the high Middle Ages? Um, no, he is not. Hmm. He was definitely a um, an important part of it, but we actually have still yet to get to the master. Oh, where kind of everything climaxes with 
this. And that's going to be the person we'll look at in the next three songs. Okay. Now, whether we'll get to your opinion on whether you like so-and-so or so-and-so about it, and that's going to be kind of a fun thing now. Yeah. Now that we have composers to talk about, we don't get to just talk about what's our favorite song, but we get to talk about who our favorite composer is as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was it was hard to pick a favorite song, but I hate to say it that if I had to choose one, it would have been the second or third. And I'm leaning towards towards the second, to be honest. I think I am too. Mm-hmm. Even though I do like a lot of the third, and I still do like a lot of the songs that are coming up. There are a lot of really good parts to them. It's just they're they are very much different. It's definitely someone else's footprint is on the music, which is good. Uh-huh. And that's a good thing because now, like you said, now we have different composers to talk about. And we also have different elements that they're going to bring to the table that they're going to change music differently. Mm-hmm. Whereas instead of like with the Gregorian chant and even with the music before, it's like it, it, it was still a lot of experimentation with the Gregorian chant. There was no experimentation. And so it was the completely opposite effect, but with everything before we really had very little concept or at least us in retrospect have very little concept of their music. Um, and so it's, a, it, there's not like any definitive, like stylistic elements or like any, you know, you know, tells to like what uh, composer it is like we have today with artists like listening to the, mm-hmm. the, the guitar tone or like the way the drums are played or whatever that we can pick up on like oh that's this person that had tracked the drums for this song in the studio or whatever yeah whereas in now we're kind of starting to be able to pick out okay we can tell the idiosyncrasies uh, of these different composers. Yes. Yeah, and and there's definitely a change for the for the next three songs of the set. And mm-hmm. so it was almost kind of like it it almost feels like a different time period. And I mean in a way it is because like I said we're the um the first three songs are part of the style of the Ars Antiqua. Mm-hmm. And um, when we get to the next three, it's going to be switching to the Ars Nova. Mm. Okay. Interesting. But anyway, like I said, yeah, there is different idiosyncrasies anyway, even if they are technically mm-hmm. different genres. We now have different genres. It's another thing, too. The thing that I really liked about this version of the song, though, is mm-hmm. um, the way the times when it goes to the plain chant sections, mm-hmm. it always feels like this this great release of tension. Oh, yeah. you're right. That's true. And it just it feels like this because I mean you start to get to the point in some of in this song where it starts to almost feel exhausting. 
Yeah, like after they do that first big omnis, and they mm-hmm. they essentially it goes back to the first song. Yeah, and I was like, "Ooh, it's like a reprisal." I was mm-hmm. awaiting the hour of reprisal, and it came. <laughs> and it was it was really it was really nice to hear that because I'm like, "Huh, I've heard this before," and it was it's it was sort of a, like a like an octavarium moment. Yeah, you know, where like everything and now, and... started coming together. And now you understand the why I created this set in the way that I did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To kind of give this, because I mean, when you're, yes, it's pleasant in of a sense if you're just listening to this song to have that moment where kind of things simplify after this very yeah. exhausting um, period of just constant vocal movement. Right, and then to finally have this moment where just it kind of all shrinks down, it it feels good. But then when you also are recognizing that it's the same as where we started, mm-hmm. I think it adds this extra level of catharsis to it. Right. The first few minutes of this song sounds like some sci-fi. Like opener, <laughs> you know what I mean. I could see that. I it always felt like floating in space or something. Maybe I've yeah. been watching too much of Doctor Who. I don't know. <laughs> well, right. there's no such thing as too much Doctor Who. I I just got Unle- unless you're wa- unless so. you're watching the recent seasons. I just got through season two, the first season with with david Tennant. anyway that's a that's a conversation for another time does that <laughs> does that have the double pit in it the satan pit or the satan pit yeah, yeah that one really screwed with my head that's my favorite episode really yeah i was i yeah i was watching it with somebody else and he was like oh yeah this is one of my favorite episodes of, of the series but yeah now now we can start uh saying things about doctor who and spoiling it for everybody because we already did that with breaking bad <laughs> And oh yeah, <laughs> the greatest show of all time. Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, but yeah, no. It found it felt like floating through space, sort of, because it had that like very ungrounded. Like we had the drone, but it was very ungrounded because of that major seven. Major seven has, or the major seven chord has that tendency to not feel quite right, but still feel very peaceful right enough right yeah it's not it's not in like a like i'm okay right now it's just like it's it's like it feels right but there's just something about it that kind of unnerves you a little bit not even that it's not even unnerving it's just it's like maybe maybe that's the wrong choice of word right maybe there is something that could unnerve you but you just you feel in this it like you're in this world of bliss that you just don't care it's like you're like on heroin you feel comfortably numb you're you're on heroin but it's good <laughs> that's that my understanding of drugs kids. is very limited because you know i'm 
19 and I I tend to not do that kind of thing, you know? But like, hey, can we take the, that quote out of context, please, <laughs> and just use that at different points? <laughs> okay. Um sure. Uh but that's that's how I would imagine it would be of like, yeah, there might be something that's could unnerve you, but it's fine. Like, don't worry about it. That's what that's what major seven feels like i guess to me and to a lesser extent like the major nine stuff and and the major like sharp 11 things uh you can you can get some crazy jazz extensions but those are even weirder too they're great i i love them they're weird they 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 get so weird that you start explaining them like you stop calling them extensions at some point and you just say it a D major like seven a... chord over a C major seven chord. Well, yeah, I was like, it, it it turns into like, just play a C major seven in your left hand and then play a G major in your right hand. Right. Exactly. And it's just like, oh, and it's like, what's that? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a this. You know. It's a, yeah, exactly. That is a C major sharp thirteen. Oh, C major sharp thirteen. Well, I don't like I don't like sharp thirteens. Anyway. Oh, what? I just I still don't even know. I, I'm just like going. Oh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so imagine a C and then an E and then a G and a B. That's a C major seven, okay. and then play yeah. a D F sharp A over that. That's a C major Ew. sharp thirteen. Gross. Uh, yeah, but, it, you but that's like you start doing this thing to get extensions, and this is a super tangent, but it's like to like really wrap your mind around like like getting away from like extensions in your brain. What you do is you like play a C major chord in your left hand, and then you just. On your right hand, you play another C major chord, and then you just start playing other random chords in your right hand, and you just end up finding, like, two triads that just work together, and then you just do that. You know, I don't think that that is so off-topic, because that's kind of what some of these this music that we're talking about sounds like. Because, Grant, it like... It sounds like what... going around until he finds something good. Like it's it's literally a you do you play pretty much play a C major in your left hand and a, and a D major with the third on the top in your right hand. Well, that would be a C major, and then you could also do a B minor. That's a good one. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, this is a huge tangent. Jack, uh, that's that's yeah. what that's what they come here for. Do, do, and, do, 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 do. Yeah, and you could, and you could like, you can create these fantastical chords that sound wonderful in good context. But if you play them out of context, they just sound bad. Um, I think there's like a really notable one where it's like a F over like a F sharp, which is just not even good. And I can't remember what composition it was in, but it's like it's. If you play that on the piano, it just it sounds so bad. But s- some composers have have found ways of getting around that, and one that comes to mind is Jacob Collier, 
And another one that probably now will come to mind is the composers that were, or some, is the composers that we're talking about today. Because there are a lot of weird things that are going on. And then finally everything makes sense when they do the giant suspension and go into ominous. And we'll get to even weirder stuff, you know, scale-wise, uh, as we get to our next composer. Yes. So, are we uh, are we ready to move on? I yeah. In the interest of not having any more tangents, which we will have anyway. But yeah, I like the tangents. I like tangents too. Yeah. Okay. So, our fourth song. We're moving on to our another uh, our other composer. This is still Notre Dame stuff. It's got Notre Dame in the name, but I guess yeah. we're gonna call it Gloria. Uh huh. So this okay. is actually the second um, piece of the uh, of the Messe Nostradame, which is translates just as the Notre Dame Mass, because that's the style of music it is and where it's performed. All right. Very simple. So um, the uh, the Gloria is actually my personal favorite of the three. Mm-hmm. I really uh, like the uh, the way that it starts mm-hmm. with the with the single voice, and then it uh, transitions hard into the um, the multiple voices. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I like this and, song a lot. I, yeah. I I if we're talking about composers, I like I don't know how to say his name. Uh Guillaume de Michaud. Yeah. I I think I prefer him over uh Leonin. Really? Yeah, I I'm, I'm so this is this is the um the the master of this time period and like i said we're actually even going to get to a point where um he uh will not only be the master of the spiritual music but also of the secular music see i don't i don't really see and maybe this once again is my modern ears hearing this i don't see him being as that great of a composer compared to the other two that we talked about. Hmm. You know, because there, he definitely has that like specific mark of him using harmonic minor. Um, But I think that he, he really loves uh, to suspend on that, uh, on that five major before he goes to the one minor. And he really loves to use diminished, and I think he I think he tends to overdo it and not not build up to the and that's another thing that we have the concept of that came around later was this concept of building like building dynamically. We have dynamics here. We have dynamics in this song. the 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 vocals will you know go lower or higher or whatever as a whole. 
uh, and there will still be just as many voices, but it will be, you know, significantly softer to have like this certain mood. I, I think there's a spot in the middle there that that sounds sort of almost like ghostly-ish. Um, mm-hmm. But we have this con this modern concept of I mean once again we're going to reference Octavarium of building and building and building and building and building an intensity and complexity and in range of the different parts and things that they can't quite like physically do yet um, because they don't have the instrumentation yet and then also just compositionally they don't have a concept for because I mean once again they don't have the instrumentation for it um and so one one of the really good here i am referencing dream theater again one of the one of the really great build-ups to a suspension like that is the end of the solo for spirit carries on is like mm, the, the yeah. entire solo is building up to that moment and so when they do that super, super cliche suspension, it sounds so great. And I love that. Sus- that's one of my favorite suspensions of all time. Exactly, exactly, because, because it's introduced so well. And I think that... Dim- What's his name? Dim- Dim- show. I was going to say DiMarzio. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was Joe Joe DiMaggio. DiMaggio. Yeah, Domino. I was gonna say DiMarzio because that's the pickup. (laughs) DiMaz DiMasho. DiMasios. Don't. We had Mazios earlier, and it's Mazios, not Mazios. Whatever. Okay. You sound like my wife. This guy. I don't. Oh my gosh, this guy doesn't. He he doesn't build up to the the diminished and and the the five major because there's not that stylistic element in music yet. Period. So it's like you can't blame him for not doing it. It's just it's not a concept that's I, in music. I liked how he was using that like weird diminished chord like what i mean i like how he six was i I like i I like how he was using it too but it's it's it was always introduced very quickly and was never hung on for a long time sort of like the there was maybe the timing was just wrong or something and then like you know once again, it's like I, I like modern that, years. But... It was like a weird tension and release where, like, you would just be listening, and then that high vocal would just hit. It's pretty much a tritone, right? Yeah, I mean that's what a diminished chord is. It's a tritone with a flat third. But like, it just like that high note, like, just <laughs> it just like cuts through everything, and it feels really uncomfortable. But I was like, yeah, I, I like it though. It does, and he always resolves. It's just, it's, 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 and he does. The thing is, though, that's cool, and I would kind of like that, and I'd kind of, you know, I'd get behind that. But he does that in the next song as well a lot. You know, yeah. 
So let's talk about a little bit about uh, a, a big reason why Michaud is so revered and why he was a big, um, I guess you could say, revolutionary. So the, mm-hmm. the idea of the Catholic Mass and that musical structure where you have this five-part suite, pretty much. Almost, you could say it's, it's like the first suite. Um, normally, that was written by lots of different people. They would eat, like different composers would each write a part and it would just be combined together. Michaud was mm-hmm. the first composer to actually write all five pieces to be played as one unit. So really, you could say that he wrote the first, um, I guess you could almost say like a uh, a vocal symphony. Hmm. Now, of course, you know, to compare it to a symphony is a bit um, crude because it's five parts instead of four and there's a lot less going on as far as all the different musical components. But, and if you wanted to kind of just comparatively, um, you know, kind of show the commonalities and the differences, you know, he, he has to be given props for, you know, being the first composer to have the ambition to create, such a large um, uh, piece just by himself. And so he was definitely the first composer to kind of create these large pieces just by himself. That's super did he end it with attention all cities of the Holy Roman Empire we have assumed control? Uh, no, that that would have been pretty cool. That that come that comes <laughs> next week. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, so yeah. there is there's an importance to that, you know, to to create such a large piece to have internal consistency throughout. And for it to be received as well as it was back in the day, um, it was a big deal. That's true. And uh, also, we should, I guess, real quick, talk about what does this passage even mean? Which is... Um, yeah. This this section is, the, is a celebratory... I mean, you know, whenever we talk mention the word glory it's always glory in the highest that's pretty much what this um passage is saying on earth peace and goodwill to men we praise you we bless you we adore you we glorify you and there there's more text to it but i won't read the whole thing yeah it 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 sounds like we're not hanging as much on yeah we're still kind of doing it but it sounds like we're moving lyrics Uh, much there's definitely a um there's you kind of have to have a um a bit more of a conciseness, even though this is still a very large long piece um you you can't 
have every section be 13 minutes like uh, the Veranda Omnores is. Yeah, that's true. But it's in a way we have almost really no sort of spiritual succession from the Gregorian chant anymore because everything's uh-huh. very complex. And we don't now. have a plain yeah. chant to return And we don't to. have, we don't, and we, and we're not hanging on any syllables anymore. So it's not meditative. This is, this is. And so in a way we've moved. This is definitely away. now where we talk about how some of these are starting to look forward and are more performed almost performance-based rather than um, meditative. I would say the Michaud is the first composer Mm -hmm. that his music is meant very much more to be listened to itself rather than to create a mood. And, you know, yes, of course, we have musicians today that their music is very much more to be music than music that stands on its own but you know for the most part people that make me today they will will recognize them as a musical um, you know composer and it's meant to be listened to So, mm-hmm. you know, you could say that Michaud is kind of the first one to really kind of see the future. And we'll definitely see that whenever we go into our next Ooh. music history episode and look at his secular song, because we're going to absolutely so as well. Did Michaud's um, secular career land like help him in his the religious career or was it vice versa like his um he was with this kind of mass thing propel him into the, the, the mesa world. de nostradam was kind of like his big breakout piece where like kind of after he wrote that so that like propelled yeah. him into the mainstream and he kind of he kind of solidified his legacy through that piece and then after that you kind of just it was just like I, I can do whatever I want now. That that was his that was yeah. his radio hit. Or his his just his big critical success. <laughs> I mean, did I guess kind of how did fame sort of work then as a composer? Because then um, what you would do is the uh, the kings and the dignitaries would start to invite you. That's actually where the uh, the, the secular music would live is would be in the king's court. You know they they would they mm. for you know mm-hmm. entertainment and for you know for their own court they would say okay I want to I want to have someone sing me a tale of heroism and and valor and bravery. Um, go go get that guy because he can do it really well. And so when Michelle was starting to become very um, prominent and um, 
famous in in that period, he started to uh, get requests, kind of like how we talked in our Beethoven episode, where people would be commissioned. They would be, you know, come and play in my court and write a new song for us to hear. Now, Hmm. um, beyond that, I probably couldn't tell you because I haven't really started that research in earnest yet. That's just kind of what I've learned from my initial um, at the subject. So I'll be able to explain in a lot more detail about that whenever I do my full homework. But yeah, so, you know, it's very much kind of you've got to consider the fact of just what he was doing. Maybe, yes, like I also personally really enjoy um, uh, the the Leonin Periton works just from a emotional standpoint. Those just kind of hit me a little more. But also at the same time, I recognize just how revolutionary Michaud's works are. And with that, I think we can go ahead and move on to the mm-hmm. second part of this back half, which is Credo. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which is mm-hmm. literally just a, a recitation of so the Nicene Creed. We... We have the same theory components, stylistic elements that Gloria had, mm-hmm. but they're put in a very so different does... way. Yeah, um, there's still, you know, there still is that weird um, kind of like diminished suspension that that you can hear, and so that's definitely like that's his thing. Now, I would say that he doesn't do that as much in the next song, and that's. That's why I would say the next song is my favorite because it's something that's sort of fresh. Um, but there are still fresh melodies, and you can definitely still hear it's a different song. Um, and so it's kind of like, at, even though those are very, very close, you can tell it's a different song. And so it's like music is no longer like a gimmick from. From even like the ancient uh, music time period, um, when we when we looked at different songs, mm-hmm. all of the songs were so different, and it was all like, oh, let's experiment with this weird thing, and let's like add this noise here, and I, from a very different sense, the Gregorian chants were all, uh-huh. they all sounded the same, but. But between um, Gloria and Credo, you had the same, you know, vocals. You had the same, um, like, scale. You had very close to the same tempo. Uh, but you could tell yeah. it. And does it, songs. does it and make more sense now important. that these are are larger parts of one giant conceptual piece? Instead of yes. just going, oh, he just only knows how to do yes. one thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, and that makes that does make more sense. It's it's just still I I don't know. It's just to me, I feel like 
and I mean, once again, this is maybe like my modern ear saying this, but it's like it, I feel like that sort of trick was a little overused. That's just my personal preference, you know. It has. Do you agree with professional that? Professional preference. Professionally, yeah. I I agree that 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 like kind of flat six thing. Like, whenever he uses it, it's like good, and but like it kind of becomes I feel like a like a crutch in a weird kind of way. I guess I never. Like it's still, I mean, it's still really unique of a move, but it's almost like it's so unique that if you overdo it, it kind of loses its flavor. It it's kind of like how a lot of people don't like Van Halen one because Eddie does a lot of the same licks. But if you There's like a them, lot of people that don't like Van Halen one, and so if well, I mean, there's a lot of like critical like super critical listeners of van halen who just don't like van halen one because he it not not a lot of his stuff is his solos i should say not like the composition but like eddie's actual like licks and solos a lot of them are like the same things just kind of phrased slightly differently or put in slightly different tempo or slightly different scale or whatever and so it's technically the same lick and so it's really nothing new, but if you're someone who likes them, then that's okay. And I happen to be somebody who likes them. And so I think if you, if you're a listener who likes this prick, then like, yeah, that's fine. That's like no big deal. It's kind of like mumble. <laughs> yeah, it's like you either, or it's like the first either, time you hear it, you're like, whoa, this is really good. And then it's like, oh, never mind. They do yeah. it for every single thing. And right. It's, not it's either. It's either you fall in love with it or you get sick of it. You know? One of the two. I, I think, though, to give him credit, I feel like it, like that was the first time so far that we had heard uh, melodic dissonance. That's true. You know? And so he was probably like, well, the only way that you can have dissonance is if you hit this flat six diminished over, chord. Over, over, over. Yeah. and so i want to do it i want attention and so he's gonna do that because like the theory and, and the feel of of creating dissonance in other ways just hadn't sunken in mm-hmm. yet so i respect it for its pioneeringness and that's why i can kind of get over that because it's like uh that's like that's his only trick in the book and he's the only person, like, no one else even knows how to do that, you know? I mean, that's not his only trick, but I know what you mean. But, like, he's like, oh, I want to create dissonance. Let's look in my tool bag. All right, I have this the <laughs> right. flat six diminished, you know, so I'm going to put is, that in there. That is true. These are, these are, like, the first songs where we're in a scale, like, a, a proper scale, and it's not, you know, a major mode. Throughout this on, whole series, even on the version of uh, Viterant Omnes that Periton did, it's like there's dissonance, but it's in it's almost like in the suspensions and in the almost like the melodic stacking. But and, there, but and, there wasn't dissonance in terms of like I'm going 
almost a little bit out of scale and making your head turn a little bit and then bringing mm-hmm. it back. Like there's no there's no accidentals. Right. Right. But there is in Gloria and Credo. Accidentals is in like Yeah. Yeah. Sharps and flats. Just in case any of the listeners are like, oh he made an accident. What do you mean? <laughs> he you know, made an accident. So he had an accident, guys. Uh, all right. Anyway. But yeah, and so I think that's that's the big takeaway for me from Credo is the fact that it's it's very, very close, and yet it's definitely mm-hmm. a different song. There's, a, there's enough variety in there to let it mm-hmm. stand alone, but at the same right. time... You know, because of the fact that it has to match this conceptual whole for the whole for all five parts, it's got to have some kind of mm-hmm. similarity to it. I think, yeah, it's just you kind of have to think to yourself like this is the first time, like I was also saying, this is the first time that any one composer has ever attempted to try and write a massive piece like this. And so he's probably thinking in very, you know, still broad for the time, but narrow maybe by our perspective of just going, how do I pull this off? Okay, yeah. I know I can do this. I've got to keep this element in in order for it to make sense. And I think that he was definitely working with what he knew he could do. And it was blowing people's minds at that time. Mm-hmm. And there, there's another big thing too, that I noticed that maybe it's happened before, but um, towards the end of Credo, there's a slight change of tempo and it's kind of like a change of mood towards the end. And it's kind of like, it it felt like a finale to like an epic, even though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is part three of five. I wrote that down, not knowing this was epic, but yeah, it, it sounds like there's, there's a change of mood here. Now, whatever, whatever. To clarify, all five pieces were not played at the same time consecutively. There would be, after, in between each piece, there would be prayers, there would be rituals, there would be sermons, mm. and then it would go to the next part. So it's not like they, okay. the, the piece ends and they would immediately start playing the next one. This is kind of meant to be spread out over an entire service. But anyway, I just I I just noticed that change. It felt like they had slowed down. It felt like there was a mood change, and it just it, it felt like well, uh, which I guess being the being the third song, I guess that kind of makes sense because it's kind of like well, it's, let's you know, well let's look then at what's like being said in this uh, tempo change. Maybe that gives us a clue as to why he did it. Uh, right, the last. It's true. Um, couple of lines say I confess one baptism for the remission of sins and I await the resurrection of the dead and the life of the coming age amen 
So to me, that, that makes sense. The whole idea of I await the resurrection of the dead and the life of the coming age that that definitely feels like this like exciting climax that the because pretty much just again everything is I believe in this I believe in that you know. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus, and so on and so forth. That's what the whole point of this song is, is to be able to say all of the things that you believe in as a Catholic. Right, and I guess I guess it would be, it would be a, a peaceful way, because the tempo goes down. And so it would be like a peaceful, mm-hmm. like I believe this. It feels like it. So it's like it feels like a, a good resolution. Have, you have a you have a hope for something. Yeah, you have a hope for something that is beyond the corporeal nature mm-hmm. of the world around you, which is great. Not not to reference Dream Theater, but like, <laughs> hey, there was a Dream Theater song about that too. <laughs> I'm just saying, and we mentioned it earlier. Anyway, um, I'm ready to move that on. That is, song, which is my favorite. It's my favorite of the three. This is oh. my favorite in the set, in the whole set. Yeah. All right. So this is this is which Agnes translates Day. to Lamb of God, not the metal yep. band. Yes, it does. Uh, no, not the metal band. Definitely not the metal band. Uh, but this, this, I think it was great that you put this at the end because it kind of incorporates a lot of everything we talked about in this whole set. A lot of different stylistic elements that are completely different from the first Viterant Omnis. And so we have melodies that are all flowing over each other and they're different rhythms and notes and they sometimes clash into each other and suspend and sometimes they'll resolve. Um, and it kind of sounds like it's accidental when they resolve. Uh, he didn't mean to do that. He did it on accident. But yeah, we, we, well, I don't know. It just, it has that feeling of it being like, it just happens uh-huh. to be like this. Uh, but it's definitely, it definitely was planned, but it still feels like that. Um, and there's very dynamics, like we talked about from Gloria. There's, you know, lengthened syllables, and there's a lot of different rapid melodies from our third version of Vitter and Omnis. Um, there's drones from the second one. It's just, it's everything. And then we also have new stuff. We have, it sounds like we're moving keys sometimes, and there's not a, like a strong meter, but everyone stays together because we have that um, way of writing down music that involves time now. Um, and so we're, we have come a long way, I think, with this song shows that we've come a long way from the Dark Ages, but we still yes. have... So this is the final um, movement in the mass as well. Um, and the the translation is actually very short, so I can read the whole thing here. And it's uh, pretty much you have three statements, and they all start with the phrase Agnes Dei or Lamb of God. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. 
Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, grant us peace. And that's it. Hmm. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. That's a P-A-Yesu line. A, a what? Uh, there is this, there is this um, choral song that was written, and I, I think it was in the 80s. And it was about like the Irish Civil War. And it was about like the fact that, you know, the the country was split and there were a lot of, you know, it was brother will kill brother, <laughs> right? Of course and, you were going to have to figure out uh, a way to get Megadeth in there. Well, okay, yeah. It was like, and so there was a lot of like, there was a lot of physical pain. People were dying. There was a lot of like emotional pain because, uh, you know, communities were split. Families, I'm sure, were split. And there was a lot of spiritual pain too because it was it was like it was it was over religion. And so, you know, there was a composer who wrote this song, basically like like asking you know, God to like grant everyone peace and like, you know, um, and I can't, I can't remember the exact translation, but it's really, it's really, really beautiful. Um, but it's actually, I thought it was written around this time because it was so like authentically, it sounded very authentic. Um, but it actually was written only like 40 hmm. years ago. which is crazy. But, but that is that's that's a line in that song is like Lamb of God, you know, grant them rest. So yeah, they're definitely pulling inspiration from this. Right, right. So there you go. He is yeah influential. Demasio. Dim Dominoes. Eventually, we'll get it. <laughs> We've only got a couple Dean minutes left to get it, though. Oh my god! Yeah, it's true. Dean Michelle. Good thing is that this is not going to be the last time that we'll um, that we'll hear of him. So I'll have I'll have two months yeah. to get his name right. No, I'll have two months oh, to forget his name. Uh, that's more. That's more. Not not as. Um, <laughs> reassuring well too much to forget how to pronounce it I should say I will definitely remember that he exists <laughs> but I, that's I will, curious of you I will remember he exists but I will forget that how to pronounce his name anyway alright Ethan do you have um, <laughs> you had talked about that this was your favorite song of the whole set so uh, elaborate yes. kind of what your reasoning for that is. So I think uh, uh, show. I think the thing that I think stands him out from all the other people is that he he's using like triad harmonies and he's not just using like a like droning bass note uh -huh. at the bottom you know 
So that's that to me. I was like, oh dang, his, the harmonic complexity is like way, way more. You know, mm-hmm. you can't really even have a diminished chord with the way that the other guys were composing because they would have just a bass kind of drone on the bottom, and then there'd be like just a like two harmonies. You know, and so. It, it, he is more sophisticated. I think the only reason that I would gravitate towards the third one, towards the other two, is because of what we said before about it. it's just kind of the other two songs sound pretty similar, and and they can, even though I know it was revolutionary for the time for my own ears, it it was starting to sound kind of gimmicky with like using kind of the same moves, you know. And in this one, I think there was a good, there was a good balance of like he would still do it sometimes, but like the song was more major and happy sounding and it's just compositionally it sounded like he was just moving it like the pacing was just better i guess yeah and that sounds like a weird you you, if if you haven't listened to the spotify playlist yet you seriously need to 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 understand the weird musicy words but if you if you listen to it already you would you would kind of understand like the other two there was kind of a darkerness to yeah. it. And, yeah. And 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 then this last one it's it's just kind of a it doesn't feel like really showy. It just feels like oh these are really good kind of three stack harmony stuff and there's some good tension and release and and it's just good. It was just composed really well and there weren't a lot of gimmicks. It was good. And all the gimmicks weren't weren't overdone, and they weren't right. Yeah, they weren't overdone. It was always fresh. You know, even even though there are definitely some things that were repeated in there, it always felt fresh, and I think that's, yeah. that's good. So yeah, I'd agree with you on that. Why do you? Why is this not you guys' favorite one? Because I, I thought for sure we would all gravitate towards Agnes Day as, as our I, favorite. I think that if I could guess why Lucas chose uh, Bitter Omnis is because there's more yeah. emotion behind it. And that's sort of that's sort of why I did too. Is because I was still listening to this from the perspective of the Dark Ages. You know, of like oh, this is the purpose of Gregorian chant is to, like, put you in a certain, like, mood. And so I was listening to it from that way. And so, of course, I'm going to gravitate to the earlier songs. Um, but I still did enjoy, like, the the different, you know, droning and harmonies and stuff like that. Whereas I think these last three songs, they were they were too complex for me to listen to them in that way. And so, in my mind... I was like, oh, this isn't, you know, a proper Gregorian chant, so it must not be good. And I did that sub- subconsciously. And I think if I listened to it again, I'd have a different opinion. But also in that same way, I think emotionally still, the the second and third version of Bitter and Omnis is... is more like it, it carries the emotion better. I think for me it came down to just um, how they made me feel and the atmosphere 
of the other two, I felt like the atmosphere was, I guess, a little more dense. And I, it mm-hmm. just kind of brought me more into the moment where, um, like, I would say probably objectively, I would say that Michaud's was better. But from a subjective standpoint on just, like, what I personally just really connected with, there was just uh, something about um, the second and third iterations of um, the first song that just grabbed me more. So, well, I think that we can go ahead and wrap up this segment. And unless you guys have anything else critical that you wanted to throw out there. I mean, we've talked for different types of Gregorian yes, chants we have. for 80 minutes now. So, so <laughs> then we'll go ahead yeah. and take a break. And when we come back, we will uh, give our final thoughts. So stay tuned. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. I'm Ethan, and we are in our final segment we just got done listening to the religious songs of the high middle ages which uh we did veteran ominous we did the plain chant leonin and periton versions of those and then we had our final three songs which were the notre dame mass um which was gloria credo and agnes day and now we are on to our last segment called final thoughts so grant um what are your thoughts about the high middle ages i i kind of mentioned this when we were talking about agnes day towards the end of the last segment where it's like you can tell throughout this you know these list of six songs specifically and lucas did a good job of ordering them the way that he did um because we start well, thank you yeah yeah you're welcome but i mean we, we start with we start with something very simple we start kind of where we left off and we end with something that's completely on the other side of the musical world really in 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 thought process and composition and in spirit really and so there's a lot of more complicated changes and there's a lot of more musical elements that composers now get to play with. And so we're, we come, we have come a long way musically in this episode. I've come a very long way, but I mean, like I said, you know, our modern ears, you know, my modern ears, especially, I would say like hear different things and expect different things to happen than what ends up happening. And so we still have a long ways to go. Um, but I think this was a good episode to have because it, it showed the progression of music. And I think it was really fun to see that. And I would encourage everybody to, with that you know in mind, listen to the songs um, because you might hear something you know that you didn't notice before if you're listening for that increasing complexity and that that progression of music itself, then you might, you know, gain a new appreciation for the different, you know, musical elements that we have now today. And yeah, and I guess that's, that's kind of 
what I sort of got from this episode specifically is just the fact that like we are now getting very very close cosmically to where music is now it's starting it's starting to sound like mm-hmm. you know kind of like our beethoven episode it's starting to sound sort of like the music that he was trying to sort of rebel against and so we're really close i mean obviously in time frame we're we're close but closer yeah i i would say we got some really really this is in my opinion this is the most significant um time period that we've talked about so far in terms of like what changed and how rapidly Mm -hmm. it changed yeah and so i mean yeah okay ancient greece we got a lot of stuff ancient rome we got a lot of stuff and that was like a, a a vocal or like a choral arrangement of a song, even though we haven't gotten there like theory wise to like kind of more Western modern, you know, uh, arrangements. The fact that we've kind of opened that, that up, we're getting we're going to be talking about um, secular music. We have composers now. We have, you know. Uh, apparently we're also going to have instrumentation kind of creep in um music is going less about mood more about performance like these are all things that are cultural like huge huge cultural things that we had lost with greece and rome and the fact that we're getting them back now um and they're kind of taking their new form uh i think that's it, that's a huge 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 deal and so it was cool to kind of i like the way that the set was put together too kind of from like a it's like it was put together from like a here's what the beginning of the high middle ages sounded like and then by the end of it we were here i think that gives it a lot more context of like oh dang a lot has happened and, and we wouldn't have the other thing we wouldn't have even been able to really put that together because um there was never that dramatic of a shift in any of the other ages until now Mm -hmm. where music was moving this fast and so uh yeah those are my thoughts yeah so i had looked at this time period before i had about probably five years ago ish I had done a very um, broad preliminary run through music history and had kind of learned the, the, the broad strokes of everything that I am now learning in detail about. And I had actually listened to Michaud's Mestre de Notre Dame and I remember not being at all impressed with it back then. Just going, just kind of in the in the mindset of, you know, I when are we going to get to the good stuff? And now learning so much of the context of everything that came before and everything now, I now realize just how great this music was. And not just great for its time, but great even by today's standards. 
um, just understanding how important all this stuff was and the groundwork that this laid for the music that's going to be coming. Um, I've really loved this slowed down approach and this opportunity to really not just understand the music, but understand the world at this time. I love history and uh, this has been such a fun thing for me to do. And I'm very excited to continue to move forward. But at the same time, I'm very happy with everything that we have learned so far. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much all I've got to say. I have one more thing to say. Yes. Dame Michaud. <laughs> you did it. Hey! Yeah, I get it. Okay. Woo! Everyone that's listening, give Grant a round of applause. Oh, thanks. I can hear it already. <laughs> all oh, right. There uh, it is. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. Um, we hope that you have been enjoying this uh, this little diversion that we take every month to go through music history. Um, we know that uh, this is going to continue to get more exciting the further and closer we get to um, our current times. And um, it's going to be really fun when we can start to talk about modern artists and all the fun little subgenres that go along with it so um if you like what you listen to please hit the subscribe button we have new episodes out every monday morning 9 a.m central and next week we have we we kind of had some little clues sprinkled throughout the episode on who we're going to be talking about next week but i'll go ahead and officially announce that we're going to be doing our next volume two on Rush. And specifically, we're going to be talking about the epics. Woo. So, for those of you that listen to the songs, you're going to want to carve out a very large amount of time to listen to these songs. But it's worth it. Ooh. Oh, yeah. And, we're, and you're going to want to also carve out a lot of time to listen to this episode, because I'm sure it's going to be one of our longest yet. Oh, yeah. Because we're we're gonna be dealing with some twenty minute long songs. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot to dissect. That is. Um. So make sure that you tune in next week for that, and follow us on social media on Instagram and Facebook, and um, go check out our Patreon page. There's a link in the description of the episode for that. Um, we have exclusive content. Normally we do an after hours, but we're actually not going to be doing one for tonight's episode. But, uh, normally that's just an opportunity for us to talk about, um, sometimes we talk about, uh, ridiculous Rolling Stones ranked lists. Other times we, uh, look at the worst songs of an artist, which is what we're going to do with our Rush episode next week. So even though there won't be an after hours correlating to this episode, you can uh, listen to the ones that we did for previous ones. And the other thing is that there's a link in the description of the episode for the Spotify playlist. So make sure that you go and listen to these songs. And um, that's all I got. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. 
keep on listening to good music.